0: Hey,
1: this is DeRay, we're going to Posse the the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya Miles, and I'm telling you about all the news that you don't know from last week about race and justice. All the news that should have been the most important news in the country. We talk about the NAACP Awards, Black People in Tiny Homes, the Uncovered History of Aunt Jemima, and then we close out Black History here with our final book club segment, discussing The Sovereignty of Quiet by Kevin Quashie. Make sure to download the full reading list now at blackestbookclub.com. Also, special shout out to SiriusXM, Pandora, and Stitcher for featuring Ponte the People in New York City's Times Square. Go check us out, take a selfie, do all the things we appreciate and love all of your support and love you for listening. The advice for this week is to watch a movie. Like, go see something that you wanted to see, but like didn't think you had time to see either home or in a theater. Make sure you're COVID safe and all those things. But I watched a couple movies this weekend and they were great. Here we go.
2: Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger.
3: I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me doing the thing like Angela Bassett at Pharaoh <laughs> Rapture on Instagram and Twitter.
4: I'm Kaya Henderson on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. This is
1: Dre
2: at DIY on Twitter. This I'm I'm really just confused by. So, you know, we are in a group chat together where we discuss a host of different things. In fact, <laughs> that chat could be its own podcast. But one of the things that came up. That Kaya sent through is this this feedback response that's been happening around Jonathan Majors' cover of Ebony. Now, first, I just want to shout out Ebony. Who, the covers, the content, the writing has—it's been great, y'all. It's been great. It's—I feel like it's updated, it's modernized, it's improved. So. Hopefully the good progress continues. And I think as part of that, this cover, which if y'all haven't seen, I mean, y'all have seen it. Jonathan Majors is the finest man on the planet. He is in pink. He's got one leg over the other. He's pursing his lips. Is that how you say that? Um, And he's he, stunning. Absolutely gorgeous. And so the internet, the black internet was upset. Some, some some members of the black internet community were upset and said that the photos and the shoot were another attempt to emasculate black men. Sometimes it's our own people, you know what I'm saying? So my, yeah, Miles, I want you to break this down <coughs> so that I can have a framework to have a, <laughs> which my opinion can come through.
4: A
3: framework. Bring the framework. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna work the frame. Um <laughs> A, I just think that I was really impressed with Ebony. I don't know if any of my well-connected uncles and aunties on this podcast have a connected ebony. I would love to write there at this point because I thought that article was such a forward-thinking, transgressive article. Um Re- and so and, and so countercultural to like where ebony kind of positions itself as like the pillar of black respectability and really a reinforcement in a lot of like class ideas and as, and, and gender ideas. so I thought that was a really um bold article when i when I got to read it. <clears throat> the other thing about it too is Jonathan Major every any single time we have this kind of fixation on a black masculine. Um, person who has the abs and who has the deep voice, we also pin them up as the, as, as an idol of masculinity. And of course, other races fetishize that, but also we, fetishize that too and a lot of times black femmes black women we fetishize the all uh, the hyper masculinity just as much and when that is broken when that promise that cultural unsaid promise of hyper masculinity is broken people get upset because unfortunately i hate you know you know i do broad i do broad strokes because i only got f- only split someone to talk but unfortunately a lot of times when we're the only one or we're one of a very few people you have to be everything to that person so either you're the black dad or you're the black hunk or you're all these different things and when that's broken people get really 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 upset and what you see to me is and you know uh i i I identify as a non-binary femme person i like I, I, the the whole gender revolution. I'm 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 smack dab in in the middle of that, you know. And what I also see is this bigger backlash to the transgender non-binary conversation. And when it comes to in the black community and in greater pop culture, and I think because we've been seeing so many black people, so many people in general embraced uh, or actually. Uh, five gender stereotypes. I think that there's a little bit of a like patriarchy blues. Like I miss when men were men. I miss when women are women and there's this patriarchy blues. And then Jonathan Majors with his with his built physique and his deep voice and he's playing I'm not gonna front like I seen a movie that he was in, but I'm gonna assume that he's (laughs) putting things that muscle meant like he boxing or flying somewhere.
4: Come on, creed. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. He's doing he's doing masculine things. And now (laughs) that he's in a color or now he's in a position where that's being, that that fantasy is basically being disembodied, people get upset about that. People get upset in their in, in in their guts about that cuz they're like we can't have that. Y'all got everything else. Y'all done did this to 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 this person. This person's talking about this and now we finally got Jonathan Majors and here you are taking them and I and I think that that's what it is. I would name that yeah, patriarchy blues is what I would call it.
4: I love it. That's a framework. Um, I thought this was interesting because, like, we talk so much or I think so much about what Black freedom really is, right? Like, we are out here working every day trying to get free. And freedom means, like, you can be or do whoever you want to be and do. And so to see this actor who is right now on the top of his game, right? He's in like three or four different movies, a TV show. He's like doing all of the things and we all room for everybody black. And he's on the cover of Ebony and a super artistic thing. The other thing that was like striking to me is the stylist, Alexander Julian drew his inspiration from an anime character, um, and like in a tribute to all of the black anime fans, and felt like he was elevating a part of the community that we don't usually see, and like you know, backlash like can we can we all get free? Can we just let people be who they wanna be, however they wanna be it? Why does this matter that this man is doing whatever I, ebony's statement was beautiful. Um, They said, there's no agenda out there to emasculate Black men. If anything, there's a mission to allow them to feel liberated enough from the shackles of hegemonic masculinity, the dictation that governs how a man should act in society based on outdated rules to embrace whatever self-expression feels best for them. I'm here for That's my kind of Black freedom. I'm here for that. Mm -hmm.
2: And I just want to shout out Savannah Taylor because I adore her and she... I've been honored. My company's been honored for us to. Co- she covered us in some of the work that we do in Tulsa, and so keep on doing your thing, little girl, because we love it. And I, I think the other thing, kind of build off what you were saying, is that she's also, you know, she talked about Prince and the Isley Brothers and Andre Three Thousand and Kid. Co- it's like people let people be who they want to be.
4: Lakeith Stansfield had a thing recently, oh, like. Oh, <laughs> <Stansfield. Thank you." laughs> mm.
3: mm-hmm. And I think, and I think, just like what what y'all y'all were saying too, I think that a lot of the styles that happened in the 60s and 70s, we live in such a like a weird history moment where people, a lot of the styles that would be seen as feminine in the 70s were affiliated with pimps and were affiliated with things, were either affiliated with whiteness and you were trying to be a white glam rock star or it was pimp culture. And I think that now we live in a really interesting moment where Black people, specifically Black men, or Black-identified masculine people get to dabble in things that are not as coded with either being a total race traitor or being somebody who is morally ambiguous at best, evil at worst, a.k.a. Pam, you know?
1: Um, yeah, I just, wanted to add, I just wanted to throw that in there, too. The only thing I'll add is that what I appreciated was that when asked, Jonathan uh, didn't feed the hysteria. He's like, okay. Love my outfit, you know. Like (laughs) it was a because so much, so much of this is is to prod and poke him so that he will uh, disavow the the appearance, right? Like that is how this works. Is that like something happens and then the person in his position is like, you know, I'm not. Why everything got to be gay? Like they do this sort of like uh, homophobic adjacent, right? Or they like or full blown, and he just. Didn't feed it, and I, I really loved that. In addition to Ebony's statement, I loved um, people sort of letting the fire be the fire, but not feeding the fire. I thought that was actually really beautiful.
2: Jonathan Majors, know that you can come on Pod Save the People at any time and wear whatever you'd like.
1: Thank you.
3: Also, you can come too. I'll send you my address and whatever you like too. <laughs> While we giving out invites. <laughs> So Image Awards, so... Angela Bassett did the
1: thing. Thank Carrie
2: Tubman <laughs> for the Image Awards because the nominations, the recognition that we, that just does not happen in American mainstream happen Happened at the NAACP Image Awards.
3: No, I loved, I... OK, let me not lie. I have to I have to lead in honesty in 2023. I did not watch it, but it's I did watch it. Ve- it
4: hasn't been on TV yet. It has not. Oh, been on got TV it. Yet.
3: it. How did I see that? How do, who, who, who was Gabrielle Union? What was that?
4: They had they had four or five days of events that were taped that will show on TV sometime soon. But it has not been broadcast yet. So oh, we've just God. seen the coverage of it
3: got it I'm so used to missing stuff that I just assumed <laughs> I saw I saw them on stage talking about well either way I was really excited about Gabriel Union and Dwayne Wade. am I saying that right D- Dwayne Wade I just feel like as soon as you enter sports I'm not gonna say your name right but I was but re- <laughs> I was really excited about um them advocating for LGBT rights and I think it needs to happen I think you know the next step outside of you know who's in their personal black, celebrity dynasty, um, I think that it, in order for it to be feel, like, substantive to me, they should be reaching out to people who don't necessarily fulfill the, you know what I'm trying to say, child, the, the capitalist gain, so not your daughter, not somebody who you're doing, you know, writing with, like, just pe- regular people. I think that that could, some, I think sometimes I, I get attention because sometimes it feels contrived, if I'm being honest. And... I think the next step for them is to do things that are outside of just people who are like, oh, I'm, I just so happen to be able to make money or be able to gain popularity or be able to expand my own stardom with that. But I love the notion of embracing other, um, the LGBT people specifically in front of a Black audience.
2: Also, just going through the winners, like for a supporting actor in a motion picture, Tanakh at one who... Um, was the he's Mexican-American and he was in Black Panther. It's also
4: just love, like. But that's what we do. That's what Black that's people what do. We We're do. inclusive. We Come we call on. the whole family together, even though people will not call us together. Don't get me started. That's super right. sh- super shout out to the best man, the final chapters. You know, my boy is a writer director, and they got lots of love at the thing. Shout out Malcolm Lee, woo woo, and Neil Long Lee. and Morris Chestnut and and Terrence Howard did the whole thing. But don't get me started. Um, the fashions were also gorgeous. And the A-list
1: people came. You know, that's what I, because yeah, yeah. there was a moment, you know, when it was like, who's going to Netta Blasey It was not a, you know, it was not a thing that A-list celebrities went to
4: anymore. But, but part of that is because the establishment don't do us right, right? And so this is why it's important for us to always have our own spaces because, you know, people like, um viola davis who was totally snubbed in the oscars and the golden globes and all of those things shows up here as the you know as you know one of the winners for something or another i don't know she got her due whatever it was uh let me see what is it What she get oh outstanding actress in a motion picture right
2: But, y'all, it's even like um, I was watching Malcolm X. It was just on TV because TNT did like a Black History Month back to back to back. And Malcolm X was on for like five hours because it's so long with commercials. But, you know, what it got me to thinking is obviously Denzel should have won for Malcolm X, but also people like Giancarlo Esposito. So Giancarlo has been in like every Spike Lee film y'all can imagine, like and is brilliant. Right. So I think there's also highlights to your point, Kaya, all of these incredible people. And oftentimes, these actors have gone are have gone to Juilliard and Yale and all these things, and got to be in comedies or things that really don't test their their entire skill set, I would presume. So I think again, it's just wonderful to have this space to be
3: be that's recognized. Such a good, that's such a good point, Diara, because when when you look at like somebody like um, Quentin Tarantino or Willie Allen, how they have, like, these reoccurring actors that are kind of, like, either seen as their muses or just, like, these people who are just landmarks or, I don't know, just... I'll say landmarks in like the in their films and and you associate with them. If you're a black director and you do the same thing, if you're John Singleton, if you're Spike Lee, then you might never be recognized for that work, even though you have like that kind of um kind of sacred relationship with director and, and actor and and work and world making. But if you if you're world making in a black world, then that may never be recognized. So that, I think that's why the NAACP Image Awards are you know, important too. Did y'all see that the P-Valley? I do not know this man's name, this person's name, the, P, the person on P-Valley, and he won. I was very excited about that. And I think that's a reason, I think that, yes, I do think that sometimes Black people undervalue Black spaces, but I also think that a lot of the things that are the most esteemed Black spaces were deeply conservative and deeply queerphobic. And, and, and I think that as the world and culture was changing, a lot of people were feeling that these spaces were outdated. So I think that, what Gabrielle Union did and, and Dwayne Wade, and this also the um the the, the actor from P Valley like winning Nico, and showing Nico, Anon. Nico
2: Anon. and Nico
3: Nico Anon. I think that those things show hey we're accepting of everybody and this is not a space where you're gonna be uh, essentially re-traumatized in a lot of um situations.
4: MP Valley won outstanding drama series,
3: period. Mm. I, I need to watch the
2: we are so excited to continue our Blackest Book Club programming. We partnered up with Reconstruction and Campaign Zero to launch an amazing book list for our listeners. Curated by me, Kaya Dre, and Miles, download the Pod Save the People Blackest Book Club reading list at blackestbookclub.com now. This week, we're going to talk about my book selection, one of my book selections. It's called The so- uh, Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture by Kevin Kwashi. Okay, so I'm so excited to share, d- to have shared this book. And it actually was kind of divine timing because I just read this book. Um, so the story about how this all came about um, is I was in London this past December. I was there for literally 24 hours, but I had to make my way to the Housenworth and Worth Gallery to see Amy Sherrill's exposition because she literally was like the last day that it was going to be up. Um, this exhibition was called The World We Make, which is so interesting, Miles, and you talking about Black world making. So for those of y'all who don't know, Amy Sherald is everything. She's a portrait artist. She was the first African-American woman to complete a presidential portrait at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery of Michelle Obama, of course, Um But even before that, she has this extraordinary body of work, and she describes her work as the work reflects a desire to record life as I see it and as I feel it. My eyes search for people who are and who have the kind of light that provides the present and future with hope. So after I walked through the exhibition and saw all, you know, just experienced her work, I saw that she had a recommended book list, little table set up. Um, And so by chance, I picked up Kevin's book. I devoured it over the holidays and I actually keep going back to it. And then I started reading another book of his Black Aliveness or a Poetics of Being. And y'all, this book is hitting too. Okay, first of all, let me just read you the first little something in this book. What would it mean to consider Black aliveness, especially given how readily and literally black, Blackness is indexed to death? To behold such aliveness, we have to imagine a Black world. We have to imagine a Black world so as to surpass that everywhere and every way of Black death, a Blackness that is understood only through such a vocabulary. This equation of Blackness and death is indisputable and enduring, surely, but if we want to try to conceptualize aliveness, we have to begin somewhere else so he you know I just have been so obsessed with his poetry, but also kind of like how he's defining another space for race theory, which is through quietness, which is through poetry um and so the this sovereignty of quietness. Is really about the qu- the quality of being inward. Um, you know his 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 theory is that blackness is so shaped by publicness, and so what he wants to do is for us to go into that inner reservoir of our thoughts, fears, and desires. Um, so quiet as he sees it is a metaphor for the inner life, um, and for a nuanced understanding of black culture. A a, a where we understand and define our desires, our ambitions, our hungers, our vulnerabilities, and our fears. So I just wanted to, to bring this one because I think in the last, I guess in my lifetime, there's been a lot of loudness, a lot. Um, and I think the way that identity for Black folks comes along is, is often to be in opposition to whiteness. It is to be in protest, it is to be in defiance, it is to be in resistance. And I think that does us, does, does us a disservice oftentimes because we're not able to understand how we really feel. We're not un- able to really express ourselves in way that are that are true to our humanity. And so I just see this book as such a framework and a guiding light in terms of understanding who you are truly, without the backdrop of this system, and not that we don't know th- n- and not that we don't acknowledge that system is there, but it really is an understanding of what more we can be if we go inward and so how he does this so brilliantly is he basically compares different works, so he compares W. E. B. Du Bois with Gwendolyn brooks um he talks about the fire next time by James Baldwin, and it really is the ability for Black artists in particular or or culture creators to be able to give examples or... or, or and I think this is why Amy's work is so important and so aligned and why she chose this book. It's because she just creates what she feels she needs to create. And if that isn't a canon of resistance art, if that isn't a canon of protest art, so be it. But really the true vulnerability for her is creating something that's inward to her. And so I just thought this book is actually just, it is really not just changed my perspective, but I think also given me some instruction of how I see myself and how I see my work and how I, and how I need to remember to be mindful, to be thoughtful, to go inward, um, to practice quietness and not kind of a passive quietness, but an active quietness and where I'm digging deeper and deeper into who I am and what that means.
3: This is a this is a new one for me. This is a total um like I I I've never read this and I l and I love it. Um the first thing that as I was listening to you speak and then kind of like researching it is that you know, and I think I said this last week too, how everything's kind of linked together. So when I think about the work that the nap ministry is doing, um, I cannot remember who the um, artist is in the moment right now, but basically it's a Black artist who did a whole a, a rest vessel. So it's like a, literally a place in the moment where you can go lay down and take a nap and, and rest. Um, the, the, I, I think that these um, more performance art, um, uh, social media links, ideas around rest and solitude can't be divorced from 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 that as well. And then um, also the other thing that it made me re- remind me of is, I don't know why I'm quoting Maya Angelou so much this episode, but it reminded me of the Maya Angelou quote where she says, it is in the interludes between being and company that we talk to ourselves. In the silence, we listen to ourselves. Then we ask questions of ourselves, we describe ourselves, and in the quietude, we may even hear the voice of God. I think that there is a way that People and at black, at specifically black people, how we've always known that although we're always um, resisting and we're always talking, and we're always creating the 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 divine noise that instructs people where to go. That that is informed by our silence. We 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 quiet ourselves enough to be able to take all the voices out and hear which is the divine voice, which is the voice that is ta- that is speaking righteously. And I think that uh, just. Just knowing that there's more text that gives to that 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 idea of black people in silence and quietude is so exciting and I'm I'm so excited that you brought this to the podcast.
4: Yeah, this is super interesting to me, Diara. Thanks for bringing it. I think the first thing that I thought was this creates um what it creates, it gives us permission to retreat into ourselves and to have that introspective time that Miles just talked about to be in conversation with ourselves. And that is not a signal that we usually get. I also felt like, you know, I have a lot of friends who are introverts and or who are shy or who don't participate in the, you know, culture of charisma, if you will. And this creates space for them. I think we so over identify Blackness with, expressiveness and, and sound and, you know, whatever that, um, if you, if you don't, if you don't show up that way, um, I think it's often challenging to, to figure out where you fit. Um, and I, I think it also challenges us to think publicly about what, um, Blackness and resistance looks like. Um, he talks a lot about, you know the moment in 1968 at the Mexico City Olympics, um, uh, where the two athletes just raised their hand um, in a fist, which was a humongous protest signal. But it wasn't loud. It was there was no music, there was no marching, there was no whatever. It was it was quiet, and and I think um, it challenges us to think about. I think it's easy for us to think about what quiet means for us as individuals, but to think about what quiet means for us as a collective and how we express outrage or joy or whatever. It challenges us to think about um, expression, collective expression in a very different way. And I think I'm going to sit with that for a little while. I'm intrigued by that idea that collectively as a group, we might be able to to um, express ourselves in this broader society in a very different way than we're accustomed to.
2: So that wraps up our Blackest Book Club programming. We'll have something next coming for you, but it's still available for everybody to download. So go check out the reading list at blackestbookclub.com. At the link, you can download the list and make a purchase in support of the cause. Um, We've also designed a limited edition Blackest Book Club apparel collection featuring a range of designs and colors just for you. So thank you for those of you who have already downloaded and followed along. We are so appreciative and we hope that you got a little something out of it or a lot. And that's it.
3: So my news today, I'm very excited as your um, resident person in everything art, culture, fashion and theater and now culinary I want to let you know what's going on in the world because I want everybody to not only live but to thrive and you cannot thrive without good food. So I was so excited because essentially it it took me into my late 20s, early 30s until I went to restaurants that I... Really like like just really enjoyed and really were like oh this is an experience this is the art this is the artwork part of it was um money the other part of it is me being from Georgia and it was like interest so I like there's a way there's a down home way that I think cooking is supposed to be done that like New York City kind of broke me into another stratosphere of seeing food as like literally culinary arts so. Um, in, I I believe I'm established in France. Yes, established in France. There's a, this, it's the, it's the Michelin rating system. The Michelin rating system, if you get a Michelin star, one, two, or three, it is. It, it, it basically tells tells you that the chef there in this restaurant is excellent. So I believe it happens in London. There's some in Dubai now. There's some in um, uh, France and in New York City. But uh, essentially every pocket around the world, there should be like a Michelin star restaurant that's just scored for excellence. So the news is Charlie Mitchell, hailing from Detroit, is the first black Michelin star chef in New York City the first black Michelin star chef in New York City, which sounds a little a little crazy. Banana as well. <laughs> as well, but it, it is what it is what happened. And you know what? One of the so that that's the news. That's what I wanted to bring, bring in. It's pretty simple. But the other thing, as I was watching him being interviewed and I was studying more, I loved his reason for why went because of course people are gonna say, why has this not happened before? Why did you think this not happened? And his reasoning kind of expanded how I thought about it too, which was just was that you know, often black people don't have the capacity or interest and it's not our american dream to go through the things that you have to go through in order to be a michelin star chef which means the lo- the low pay the intense work environments that is not our I- idea of a dream and he um kind of i guess admits that it's part it was part fascination for him and part probably in part privilege that he even had the mental capacity to even put up with what he has to put up with in order to get to this position and i thought that, that was so interesting because i think that Every industry has these elite pockets that you have to kind of get underpaid and sweat through in order to get it. I think the fashion industry definitely has that when it comes to who gets to be fashion editors at some of the more elite fashion magazines, I think, um, and who gets to be, um, Darae mentioned it last week about creative directors and stuff like that. Sometimes you have to be able to already be in an economic space to put up with the underpayment in the in the in the toxic environment and a lot of times black people are like i'm not doing that because i just came from that or that's what i'm trying to avoid that doesn't sound uh interesting to me and specifically if i'm being underpaid while that's happening but um yeah i wanted to bring this in it's in brooklyn heights the um, name of the um restaurant is called clover hill it is delicious i want to go there for my birthday with every with everybody oh Um, can we go there
4: let's go there.
3: Okay, but you you know I'm he got that Michelin star now, so we okay, might have to go. To in, we sure. might have we might have to go on my 39th birthday. <laughs> so <laughs> how how it's looking? But yeah, I want to bring this in, see what you all thought, and yeah, let's book reservations.
1: You know, we've talked about the Michelin uh, rating system before because there was a black woman in one of the one of the cities that I can't remember. Uh, I am. I, I, I'm happy you brought this. It is it is wild in a city like New York, right, where there are gazillion restaurants, and da-da-da. you're like the first. I was I would have not been surprised if this was a different part of the country, but I was legitimately surprised in New York City. Like it really did <clears throat> that floored me, and I'm still like wow that we're living in a world where there are still first around this stuff is truly blows our mind. So I don't have more to add. I wish I was more of a foodie uh, than I am. I'm not a big foodie, uh, but. I did appreciate celebrating him.
4: <laughs> um I I'm super proud of this young man. Not only did he get a Michelin star, he also got best young chef and he's up for a James Beard best emerging chef um or something like that award, which is lovely when all of the official things come and knock in. Um, the, but the thing that I found most interesting about this was the fact that he didn't do it the traditional way. Um, he went to culinary school, it says, but then he was like, yeah, I need a job. I'm going to go out here in these kitchens and do the thing. And that's where he developed his, uh, that's where he learned on the job and and did his things. And I think, you know, we have to, we have always challenged the status quo, Um, We've always done things our own way. And when we do things our own way, brilliance happens. And then later on, the establishment is like, oh, yeah, that is brilliant. Here's a star. Here's an award. Um, So I'm saying, you know, some of us are rules followers, but some of us have to break the rules in order to forge new paths. And shout out to Chef Charlie Mitchell for doing his thing.
2: Yeah, I was so excited to see this too. And I I mean, <clears throat> this actually came across my radar miles cuz I was looking I wanted to host an event for a client, but I wanted to do it at a black-owned restaurant. Um and so this popped up to me for me and I was excited to see it. Um and it just takes me to, you know, growing growing up in DC. You know, there there used to be a significant number of black-owned restaurants, black chefs, um What's the sis's name? What's her name? Um Kyle, you remember that had the restaurant. One was in Union uh Union Station. B Smith. M- mm-hmm. B
4: Smith. I, I just the original going- Martha Stewart before Martha was so, a Martha. Come on. I used a Love B Smith on
3: TV1. It's mm-hmm.
4: And she had a she had um a, a thing in in the Broadway area. She had a restaurant. Her first there restaurant well. was on like 8th Avenue maybe um right. and 40 something street
2: <clears throat> Yeah, I just I guess also maybe because I was at Soul Cycle on 14th Street today in DC, I just was thinking what is happening here. Um so it just I think I'm also just in a headspace of like where are our institutions? Um, And even thinking about New York, like Shark Bar and like they're just used. I just feel like there were more than there are now. And so I will spend some time digging into why that is. But I'm sure some of it's obvious.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I was actually just texting with a friend um, who is a fellow foodie. And we were we've been exchanging black owned restaurants um, in New York and D.C. or restaurants with black chefs. Um, And if you have suggestions, we'll put together a list and share it amongst our folks. But um, I think it's really, really important. A lot of these restaurants are high end and we don't always support them in the ways that um, they need to be supported. But let us know what your favorite black owned or black chef restaurants are so that we can circulate that information and support the people in our community.
3: Okay, now we we starting our own Michelin star system. The, the why, black not? Taste bud. why not? The black taste why not? Why not? Okay, yes. <laughs> this yeah,
4: gets totally. too
1: and, it, and it's like if you had a week of opening, if you had like a week long opening where people need to come, oh my god, we'd all go. Like if it was we like, all go. if it was like the black place you got to go to, baby, it'd be the line be wrapped around the building. I just didn't know. I do learn so much. I mean, obviously, I love the pie, but. People are like, wow, you're so well-read. I'm like, I just have smart friends. I mean, I do. Read, <laughs> but, <laughs> but every Monday, I get an up-to-date dose of what's going on in the world. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. More Ponte the People's coming.
4: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both Black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham,
0: We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. (laughs) When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay.
1: This show is sponsored by
0: BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd
1: do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com people
2: right my news it kept popping up for me and i don't know if it's because my phone is constantly listening to me and how i need a, a sanctuary home like a place that you know where there are trees and grass and there aren't creatures running around well not nasty creatures um and so what was coming up was this Article about this young woman, young black woman, twenty six years old. She pays zero to live in a luxury tiny home she built for thirty five thousand dollars in her backyard. First of all, the backdrop for me is I also love anything having to do with home improvement, home restoration. So I watch it all. So I think I was also just curious about like what this luxury tiny house looked like, as it is a tiny house. So Precious Price, who lives in Atlanta purchased a home, a seemingly affordable home and wanted to rent it out. But during COVID was having a hard time renting it out, of course. And so she had another idea about this tiny home that she would build um, so that inevitably, eventually she'd be able to rent out the bigger home and then live in the smaller home. But I think her journey around this is just fascinating because I think for so many of us who, you know, want to be homeowners, want to figure out what this process is. I think she is just such a great resource in laying out what those different options look like. And the tiny home is also interesting because she basically built it like out of her pocket, right? She didn't get a loan for that. She used her credit card. She used some savings um, so that she wouldn't have to owe a bank anything necessarily for when it was was finished and then rented it out and then made her money back that way. She also has a TEDx talk That I think is interesting because it really is just really trying to figure out like when you are ready to build wealth, when you really, when you want to build a home, like what are those steps that you need to take and like what, how can you resource yourself as, 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 as much as possible to kind of start that journey. So I just found this interesting as something that we we should keep top of mind, right? And I think land ownership, when it comes to Black folks, home ownership is so important and gonna grow more important to us. And she also has this idea around the tiny homes when it comes to kind of land owned communities for Black folks, which I thought was interesting as well. So just wanted to bring this because I thought it was something that just kept popping up for me. I don't know what that means psychically for me. Maybe I need to start looking into a tiny home. Um, Kaya, can I put a tiny home in your backyard? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Which backyard is the Let uh, Oh,
3: flex. See. Let them know. know. M- Michelin star flex. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs>
4: So listen, there you go. There you I go. thought I thought this was I thought this was interesting. Um, first of all, I am too big to live in a tiny house, but God bless the people <laughs> who want to live in a tiny two hundred and uh, under three hundred square feet. You know, that ain't enough time uh, space to change my mind. But why I thought this was interesting is because um, she's she's making a really interesting decision about lifestyle, about money, about wealth. Um, and, and I think it is important, especially for younger people to really think about what it is you need, what you want to spend your money on. Um, you know, we've done enough pieces on the podcast about the importance of owning land and property and whatnot. And so, um, so I thought this was interesting too.
3: I thought this was really interesting as well. Um, I think the thing that really, um, the thing that really uh, like kind of like caught my attention was what she was doing with the property, like what she was, or excuse me, not just what she was doing with the property, but the reasons why. Like, uh, I'm originally, I grew up in Atlanta and knowing that most of Atlanta, most of the rentals are being used for Airbnbs now, she's really making a point to offer it to long-term residences, people who um, want um, student housing, people who want um, apartments that are, you know, six months, year um, year long and not just doing these kind of, how Airbnbs kind of taking over certain cities that are seen as, like, vacation um, spots. I thought that was really honorable but i will not lie that there's a, something a little bit apocalyptic about it about like the necessity for it mm-hmm. you know so the fact that like oh in order for me to have a place for my parents to live or, f- or in order for me to sustain myself or in order for me to kind of live equitably in in, in, in and in this world this is the solution that i came up with is to kind of be in this like micro living space and Listen, I love trends. I love hearing about them. I love hearing about housing trends. But I just, anytime I just, like, close my eyes and listen to what I call my great-grandmother in the sky, which that's what I call God, anytime I listen to that great-grandmother in the sky, I know that that great-grandmother in the sky does not want me to live in no tiny house. Because we, 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 we came up, you know... On the plantation and cleaning big houses, so I feel like the 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 trajectory should be bigger, bigger, and bigger. And I don't like the idea of coming back down. To, I don't. It, it, it doesn't fit me as a bigger person, but then also just I don't know. There's something about land and compromising and going small as a black person that feels ant- antithetical to my to my to my internal moral ecosystem.
1: This was one of those read the article, don't just look at the headline. Because when I looked at the headline, I was like. Okay, tiny house, saving money. Then I was like, okay, well, you own the actual house, you own the property the house is on. You Airbnb out the original house, and now you live in the backyard. It, it, it like didn't seem as progressive as the like the title made it. I I was I was expecting something different. It's like you still have so much, you still have a ton of capital to even be able to buy a house. That you rent out every day, and then build another house in the backyard, and then so when she's like, "I don't have enough um, closet space," I keep half the clothes in my friend's house, and we swap. I'm just like, "Okay, this is this isn't what this is not giving what I thought it gave it is what it is." So I was ready for. I was interested because it was your news, but I was also like, "Come on, girl.
2: y'all, better leave Precious alone." I love this, first of all, <laughs> and to think the think sis got to a place where she can do all that. That's hard to of, do, but it's all I'm hard saying to do
3: it is hard to do. That's how come I think that God don't want us to do it if it's too <laughs> hard. And you, <laughs> I think that I think that is the hint that it's not for, to be done. But also, I'm, I was thinking the same thing about I, I love like we're we're literally uh, where I'm recording right now is literally the. Closet that we had to build, well, not build, but we had to like make into a closet because I have too much stuff. Um, but I was also thinking, like, why can't you just build a closet? Like, if you have all this, you can't just <laughs> get a shed and just put your clothes in there and, and stuff. I, I was thinking about that. I was like, what?
2: Well, like a compound. All, all of the
3: all of the choices didn't feel logical. Like they They felt a little weird. Didn't? Yeah. But out to Precious Price. Getting getting that down, getting that price down precious It's one of those like, if you like it, I love it. If you like I it, it, I it. it, I love it. I will send you. How do you Uber eats? We can't even send her nothing from Clover
1: Hill.
3: We can't even give her no. Yeah, I
2: wonder how like what her what the address would be for that tiny house. Like, is it a a Too
3: letter? Too damn cartoon? small. <laughs> Too damn okay. small at the corner of Go, <laughs> go Get Your Apartment <laughs> Avenue and rent it out that way. <laughs>
2: oh, my God.
4: Well, my news is sort of funny, not funny. It's about the comic strips in these United States of America. And the recent news that hundreds of newspapers across the United States have dropped the long-running comic strip Dilbert, which... Uh, think has been around for like more than 30 years or something. And Dilbert pokes fun at office culture. Well, what had happened was Scott Adams, who's the creator of Dilbert, live streamed his response on YouTube to this Rasmussen poll that asked whether people agree with the phrase, it's okay to be white. Now this, the it's okay to be white thing is a whole thing. Um, it was a slogan that was popularized in 2017 as a trolling campaign in extreme right circles on 4chan. And <clears throat> in this recent poll, 53% of Black Americans said they agreed with the statement. It's okay to be white. That sounds cool, right? Uh, apparently not to Mr. Adams. He was taken aback by the, I guess, 47% of Black Americans who did not agree with the statement. Um and he went on what has only been described as a racist rant. He said Black Americans are a hate group. He said it makes no sense to help Black Americans if you're white. He also said white people should just get the hell away from them because this is a problem that can't be fixed. He blamed Black people for not focusing on education. He, um, you know, he said all of the things. He, he, in fact... Um, has been increasingly extremist in his views. Seems like it started <clears throat> when y'all's former president Trump was uh elected in 2016. And slowly but surely he has done things like attacked um diversity and transgender issues in his in his comic strip over time. In fact, Uh, he used, he introduced a character called Dave, the black engineer and slowly, but surely he's just been getting more and more radical. And this was, I guess the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of newspapers who have now withdrawn the comic, um, strip from production. Uh, many of them saying this was this, like, this wasn't even a hard decision. This is racist. This is against our values. Blah, 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 blah. Where y'all been for the last Couple years that this dude has been getting increasingly and increasingly um, extreme in his views. Um, He's made a bunch of other um, uh, terrible statements and whatnot. And guess who came to his defense? The only person, everybody like universally agrees that this is terrible, this is racist, blah, blah, blah. Guess who came to his defense? Of course, y'all's friend Elon Musk, the only person. Um, tweeting over the weekend that the media is racist against white people and Asians. Mm. Um, But I'll also use this opportunity to shout out Darren Bell. Darren Bell is the first Black artist to win a Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning. Um, If you have not seen his cartoon, Canderville, check it out. He also has lots of political cartoons. Um, And they asked Darren Bell what he thought. And he said Scott Adams is not unique in his disgrace. His racism is not even unique among cartoonists. Um, and he talked a lot about the growing tolerance in the United States for racist behavior. So for those of you who like the comic strips, say goodbye to your friend Dilbert and your friend Scott Adams, because as he noted on his one of his rebuttal things, he will probably have lost all of his money and his entire reputation after this but he don't care so neither do i
3: the thing about it is let's talk about charlie brown and peanuts back when comic books used to be about something but you know what in all seriousness what's really interesting about this to me or the thing that kind of like I guess massage my brain about about this was how embedded Dilbert and comic strips are to the the American culture. It's like this kind of like um, ubiquitous, everywhere thing that exists, and how the people who are creating the very things that are weaved into this culture are extremely racist. <laughs> so I I oh if I had a little bit more patience, if I was maybe getting. Paid to to investigate more. I would want to go back to the beginning of Dilbert to now and see all of the maybe even subtle racist or su- or su- or subtle things that were being said that just not that, that so you
4: subtle that we ignored. Or,
3: Exactly, that are just that that we're that we just ate and, cons- and that people are just eating and consuming, and then it's your con- and then you turn the page and then you go do it. And to me, those little things, those little crumbs of racism, are just as toxic and just as um powerful as the the big bold moments of of white supremacy and the fact that he even had capture even if it's for whatever to the two minutes it takes to read a comic or the minute that it takes to read a comic even the fact that he had so many people's imagination for that set th- those little those few that few amount of time even that shifts a mind even that reinforces certain types of ideas around um domination it's just it's just sad it's just sad it was a it was a show too right? Dilbert it was a, it was a television it
4: show It was too. it was a television show and when the television show was canceled he said he lost his
1: job cuz he was a white man I don't have my add. besides I love it shout out to the newspapers for letting them go and if anything the scariest part of me for this was like twitter is legitimately owned by white supremacists right now and that is frightening and yeah, I don't that's that's my takeaway from this actually. I don't the Delbert guy, goodbye, let it go. I hope that it just I hope that he stays gone and he doesn't get a pseudonym and come up with a new cartoon, like I want this man out of here. Uh and then Elon's again, the sole person, as you said, that scares me. So uh, maybe you all saw it, maybe you didn't. Um, is Ben Stein. Okay, sorry. Okay, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, but Ben Stein uh, last week said that he misses the good old days when a quote, large African American woman was on a syrup bottle and that woke co- corporate culture has ruined everything. And he literally, um, I'm gonna show my wonderful pod folks right now, is he literally has the bottle of Aunt Jemima. Aunt Jemima yummy pancake syrup. Now, this used to show a large African-American woman chef, but because of the inherent racism of Americans' corporate culture, they decided to make it a white person or maybe no person at all. But I prefer it when it's a Black person showing their incredible skill at making pancakes. Okay, so Ben Stein literally is like, I miss the days when it showed a Black person making Showing their incredible skills making pancakes, I miss Auntie Mama. And corporate culture has ruined it for him. So I saw that and was like, Ben Stein, you really came out. I haven't thought about you in a million years. Only had good memories of you. Didn't realize you were racist. And I looked up some stuff about Auntie Mama. I had no clue Auntie Mama was not a real person. I did not know that Auntie Mama was two women. There was one actress uh, who, when she passed away, um, they replaced her with another actress. And you might've seen the controversy about the second actress's uh, family sort of upset about replacing Aunt because they were worried about her legacy. But Nancy Green uh, was born in enslavement in 1834 and she became the model for the Aunt Jemima box. Um, and it becomes this image of the mammy. It becomes an image of the like loyal house servant who makes food, and that is what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a comforting symbol of Black people serving white people. Uh, there's a piece in NBCNews.com in the Think section, and I'll just read it because she says it better than I could, or the author says it better than I could. The character of Auntie is an invitation to white people to indulge in a fantasy of enslaved people, and by extension, all of Black America, as submissive, self-effacing, loyal, pacified, and pacifying. It positions Black people as boxed in, prepackaged, and ready to satisfy. It's the problem of all consumption, only laced with racial overtones. Uh, so, you know, fascinating is that when Nancy Green dies in 1923, uh, a congressman proposed building a national mammy monument to honor the days of the faithful Negro. She gets replaced by Anna Harrington, That is one of the auntie mamas that a lot of people know. Her face Uh, and auntie mama and uncle Ben, as you remember in 2020 were both removed from the packaging, but both of them were, I just hadn't critically thought about these images. And I really did think that they were people. And I don't know, it was something about being like, these were actors that really blew my mind. It really did. So I wanted to bring it here.
3: Yeah, it it makes sense to me because... I, I guess I, I just I, I I didn't know that because just what I, what I was writing what what I continue and have always wrote about as far as like culture so it makes sense because the faithful Negro is a fantasy there's just no such there was just no such thing and even um I think I mentioned it here on the podcast um before but the Maya Angelou poem about the laugh and how um. She she talks about how you know black women who are in domestic work they they don't laugh they part their lip, lips and a sound comes out so that performance of um, faithfulness has always been a, a white fantasy and anybody who can just think about the contextualization of how this black person got into your home or you interacting with them uh, they they would have to know that this was this was performance if they thought critically the other thing that I thought about when it comes to when it comes to this is that it is a bigger idea cuz i've been hearing so much about woke corporate and woke stuff and the the washing of woke stuff and and how everything's getting woke and woke and woke is the fact that i do see culture attempting to start from zero and i think that some people are misinterpreting that as culture making if that makes sense. Like, we're us taking out the racist and the sexist and the homophobic stuff and then trying to create something that is maybe maybe heartwarming and comforting that's not on a fat black woman's back. (laughs) Like, maybe us creating things that make us feel safe that is not about um, uh, that's not about uh, gun propaganda. We're, 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 we're only tearing things down in order to start from zero so we can actually create an American culture that doesn't harm anybody but us being more critical in itself is not culture making and i feel like a lot of times i hear people say oh they took off the black woman on the syrup bottle and yeah so so what and we can think of other ways to make people get that warm fuzzy southern feeling without it being misogynistic. you know maybe
4: I'll add I thought it was interesting that you brought this up particularly now, DeRay. Um, I on one of my conservative, very conservative friends Facebook pages, he just posted this thing about Nancy Green, and it literally the the thing says a great woman is erased from history by idiots. The branding of the syrup was a tribute to this woman's gifts and talents. Now, future generations will not even notice beautiful woman existed. What a shame! The world knew her as Aunt Jemima, but her given name was Nancy Green. uh uh-uh, uh she was an actress. What are you talking about? But this is but this is how this is how people do this thing. They they are not celebrating her for her mamminess. They are celebrating her for her. She became a wealthy superstar in the advertising world as its first living trademark. Um, It goes on to say she was selected as a spokesperson for a new ready mix self-rising pancake, flour. She became an immediate star. She was a good storyteller. Her personality was warm and appealing, and her showmanship was excellent. Right, She was signed to a lifetime contract, traveled on promotional tours and was extremely well paid. Her financial freedom and stature as a national spokesperson enabled her to become a leading advocate against poverty and in favor of equal rights for all Americans. Like, come on, the whitewashing of even... Nancy Green, right? So first of all, like we glorified the mammy and now like you want to glorify the quote unquote businesswoman, Like, what are you talking about? Like this furthers the, like she pulled herself up by her bootstraps and she playing mammy. Like, are you kidding me? And so I just want you to know that this stuff is insidious in like multiple ways, right? Like that even when We call a thing a thing and say not okay to glorify, you know, Black Southern women and use them in this particular way. You want to say, oh, but she was financially independent because you exploited
1: the crap out of her. Are you kidding me? Like, sorry, this is so bizarre. And, And Kai, to that point. So they didn't know where Nancy Green Nancy Green's grave was unmarked and unknown until 2015. Uh, they reached out to Quaker Oats about whether they would support a monument, and Quaker Oats' response was that Nancy Green and Aunt Jemima were not the same. So no, and that Aunt Jemima was a fictitious character.
2: Like, come on! But I just, I also don't see, like, why it's so hard to see. Like, you can't see Hattie McDaniel and why she won an Oscar for playing in, a mammy and why it's on the bottle of something that is a product to sell to white people, I think for me it's just like i don't like how can you not see the connection in that and in fact, a lot of how casting is still done today is a reflection of 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 that legacy right so dre i so so my grandmother collect collected black memorabilia i still collect i collect black memorabilia and so One of my prized possessions is the Black Book, which is a collage of all kinds of things, advertisements, photos, archive things that Toni Morrison put together.
4: I have that. I have that.
2: It is. If you have one, treasure. Treasure it.
3: Well, well, I'll also also say that um, Random House exclusively sent me mine. That's that's my that's my that's my Auntie Kaya flex. Cause look,
1: flex it, babe.
3: Look, my
4: girlfriend sent me hers. <laughs> that's love. That's love.
2: <laughs> But the importance of this book is the imagery, right? To remind us of how we were portrayed then, how it still connects. And this book came out in on like 1974, but all of it is still true to this day, right? So from from slavery times all the way through just in terms of, like, those raci- racist tropes that are so cemented in American culture and that white people just love. They just love it.
3: Yeah, Y'all better no. get over
2: yourselves. And it don't take... It's not... It First of all, you don't have to be a skilled chef to make a d- damn pancake. So also, that don't make no sense.
3: I was going like, to say, like, like, to your point as well, like, the, one of the reasons why I stopped writing as much and just... Yes, yeah, so one of the reasons I stopped writing publicly and speaking publicly as much was because if you're not really, you can't you can't really have a conversation about Lizzo, no matter how you feel about her or you don't feel about her or whatever, you can't really have it divorced of context of Black women, of Black fat, wh- fat women and mammification. Even if no matter where you, where, where, no matter what side you are on, you have to understand that. You have to understand our legacy when it comes to media making and culture making and Th- and that that whatever Ben Stein was feeling, that 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 tension that he was feeling that he recorded himself doing is the reason why Lizzo, is the same reason why Lizzo is uh, overly critiqued and seen as disgusting and the- also the same reason why um, uh, Black women are asked to be- behave in certain ways. Like all these things are just like interconnected. And if you divorce it from that, you're not really getting to the point in my opinion. I had a question of what is the black like the actual black book.
4: Oh, it's a book of all of the advertisements, like all of the portrayals of black people in in all kinds of different things, like in one compilation.
3: Yeah, so it was made and it was made in the 70s. So it's really um the only place so like so far where you can kind of see the um the DNA of like how black. So everything from like uh, from lynching postcards to cigarette ads are in this And it it is a through line of of the evolution and not so much evolution of Black culture.
4: And essays from Black thinkers interspersed in between.
1: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Posse of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Posse of the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by AJ Moultray and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, DR Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.